You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Erasmus Stylianessis. All right, everybody, welcome to Here for the Truth, episode 31. Um, today we have Topher Field from Melbourne, Australia. Topher is an Australian libertarian activist and political commentator winner of the Libertarian Activist of the Year Award and has influenced politics in Australia for the last 12 years. There it is right behind him. Best known for his videos, which mix humor and hard data, Topher has attracted many millions of video views on topics as diverse as freedom of speech, taxation, climate change, water policy, the nanny state, and much more. Topher's taken a leading role in the pushback against COVID lockdowns, by speaking at protests and encouraging his fellow Victorians to find the courage to stand up for what is right against an unprecedented power grab by Daniel Andrews. Topher lives by the simple motto, good people break bad laws. Topher, Mm. welcome to Here for the Truth, brother. Guys, so glad to be here and thank you very much for uh, giving a bit of a longer form format in which uh, people like me can tell the world what is actually going on in the streets down here. Yeah, man, no problem, bro. That's that, that's what we're about. This is a longer form podcast. Um, we're happy to go wherever this needs to go. And I'm ready to explore what it is that you've been experiencing, man, in mm. in Melbourne. And I mean, this is Melbourne's worldwide infamous now at this point in time, you know, and you're yeah, only they, a few they, thousand kilometers from me. And it seems to be a very different place. Yeah, uh, only you know we're not that far from Sydney, and uh, and a very very different place. And look, we're a very different place from where we were or, or who we were eighteen months ago. Eighteen months ago, Melbourne uh, had had just won for the umpteenth time the most liberal city in the world award. Uh, Melbournians were rightly very proud of our city. We've got a lot to to be proud of. Uh, we are one of the most uh, welcoming and friendly cities in the world, despite, you know, there are certain people that always want to believe there's all this racism and there's all these problems and there's all this whatever, okay? Put those idiots aside. The reality on the ground was that people from all over the world were falling all over themselves to come and, and, and live here, to come and visit here, to come and be a tourist here, to come and get find a job here. Just an amazing, vibrant place to be. Uh, I'm a coffee snob. I'm one of those horrible Melbourneian coffee people that nobody else's coffee is good enough for me. Yeah. Um, but I'm sorry, it's true. Our coffee is better. And if you know where to go in Melbourne, you will get some of the best coffee in the world that is right up there with anything you'll get out of Italy or anywhere else. Um, you know, just such a such an amazing city. And I I won the lottery because my parents moved here when I was two years old. Yeah. And and so through no fault of my own and due, due to none of my own um, good work, I've had the privilege of living here for most of my life. And whilst I've traveled quite a lot, I've always come back to Melbourne. And I always used to tell people, I'd say, oh, how was, you know, how was Venezuela? I was there uh, not long ago. How was Colombia? How was China? How was wherever? And my, my default answer became the more I travel, the more I like Melbourne. Incredible. Yeah, that, was, yeah. that, was, that was my answer. Uh, well, that ain't my answer anymore. <laughs> uh, in fact, goosebumps coming up just hearing that because it is the stark reality that I mean we have lived in the most incredible country for for a long time, yeah. and it's no offense to our American um, you know compatriot here, but uh, we uh, we we Australia is better than America. I'm sorry, it was was no, no worries. I, I I spent four months studying abroad in 2001 in Australia, nice. and then I visited again in 2010. And I absolutely loved it. And there was the part of me that was like, how do I live there? You mm, know, so mm. so no offense taken. And I'm a, I'm Greek. My family's born and okay. raised in Greece. 
And I know there's yep. a huge Greek population in Melbourne as well. I, I believe, don't quote me, but I think we have the biggest Greek population outside of Greece. Wow. I've heard that said several times, so you may yeah. be right. Yeah. Um, so f- just to give you some idea of the inversion that's happened, my wife and I are now talking to each other about where else in the world do we go and becoming reconciled with the idea that we're not just leaving for a little while, that we're actually going to, we're going to have kids. Our kids are going to get married and have grandkids and we are going to grow old and die and be buried in another country. Yeah. And, and we're having that conversation and reconciling ourselves with the fact uh, or, or, or the possibility that Melbourne's not coming back from this. That, that, you know, again, there is no guarantee of a happy ending. I'm going to keep working and keep trying to, to improve the outcome, but there's no guarantee of a happy ending here. And so in 18 months, we've gone from the more I travel, the more I like Melbourne to we're leaving and we're probably never coming back. Yeah. Well, I bring. Yeah. No, I was going to ask something, but <laughs> it's so from my perspective, I've been a political commentator for 12 years. So I've seen some shit. And I've, I've learned, I've come to understand how politics works. I've become very cynical as you do when you spend any time around politicians. But even for me, this has come as a real shock. Mm-hmm. I, I expected that Australia would end up in a really bad place in around about another 10 to 15 to 20 years on the basis of the ridiculous amounts of spending, the unsustainable, unsustainable spending levels, on the basis of our unsustainable welfare levels, on the basis that our population loves to have the, the government's boot on their faces. They love nothing more than the government coming out and saying, we're going to fix this problem. Yeah. Uh, and that all over time erodes liberties, erodes financial freedoms, erodes the economic base of a country and ultimately leads to a lot of trouble. I was expecting that in maybe 10 to 15, maybe 20 years. Um, this has caught me off guard, just how quickly this has happened. And the biggest and deepest concern is that as things stand at the moment, if we had another election right now in the state of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, the absolutely out of control state premier, the equivalent of an an American governor, um, he would win. He would win. The psychopath who has done all of this damage to us and has turned us into the most locked down city in the world would win an election right now in Victoria if it was held today. I have no doubt about that. And you think you win on a truth truthfully fair and equitable basis just based on the populist vote. I, 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 ge- I genuinely think if a genuinely fair vote was held right right now today he would win now the tide is moving against him yeah the more time passes that is shifting against him but if that were to happen right now he, I, I'm convinced he would win why why do you think that is what is it in the people that is so attached to what I would call a tyrant personally? Australians are not and have not been for decades the people that our image is. Yeah. So our image is Crocodile Dundee, our image is Steve Irwin, our, e- our image is this independent, you know, guy who, you know, you say the wrong thing to him or look at his girl the wrong way, he's going to suck you one in the mouth uh, kind, of, kind of idea. That's our image around the world. That hasn't been true for decades. The, there's a quote, and I, I don't know who to attribute it to, so I apologise, but there's a quote. The problem with Australians is not so much that they are the descendants of convicts, but that they are also the descendants of their jailers. And we have this love of chains here. We have this love of control of the, of the boss coming out and telling us how it's going to be. And we'll grumble about it, but ultimately, actually, people fall into line. We don't have, you know, you look, you look at the French and uh, there's, there's a lot wrong with French history and French culture, um, but the minute they're not happy, they're on the streets. And they, yeah. they know how to protest. They know how to do a protest, right? 
Uh, Australians, we don't have that in our blood. You look at Americans and, and they've got the history of the War of Independence. They've got the history that their entire country was founded on an act of civil disobedience in, in the, the Boston Tea Party that then led to an act of sedition uh, and ultimately treason against the British Empire that then led to their country. You know, the closest thing we've got is a thing called the Eureka Stockade, uh, December 2nd, I think it is, 1854, which is about a 12-minute skirmish between a small number of armed miners versus uh, a large number of armed government uh, police, effectively, although they didn't exist in, in their current form back then. Uh, that battle was quickly lost, and um, from a military perspective, the, the, um, the rebellion was absolutely crushed. But they went on to win from a cultural perspective. They they were all tried for their for their crime of, of fighting back against the government, and every single one of them was acquitted. There was not a single jury that would actually find any of them guilty of a crime. Uh, and one of them, John Monash, if my memory serves me correctly, but it might have been Latrobe, but one of those two, I can't recall, lost his arm in that battle, but went on to become one of Victoria's great political statesmen. Uh, so ultimately, from a political point of view and a cultural point of view, that's a quite a deeply... Uh, th that is an experience that has affected us, the Australian psyche very, very deeply, but we don't actually connect with it in, in terms of fighting and winning. We, that yeah. battle was lost. It's, it's a little bit like the Alamo is in Texas, but without the follow-up of everyone saying, remember the Alamo and going on to win that war. That never happened. And so there's this, this isolated incident where they got their asses kicked. Uh, we had the Rum Rebellion in Sydney before that. That's, a, you know, again, a bit of a different story, but we don't have a history of standing up against authority, of standing up against authority that is out of control. And we certainly don't have a history where we've really felt like we had to fight for any of our rights. Even yeah. the world wars have happened halfway around the planet. Yes, our boys went out there and fought. Yes, they were fighting for our rights, but that's quite an abstract concept compared to let's say England, you know, where they were being bombed or, or parts of Europe or parts of Asia. Um, so I don't think Australians actually have an appreciation of what freedom is, of what it takes of how important it is. They almost believe that it's the default position and it, she'll be right, mate. It, it'll, it'll all get, you know, once, once this coronavirus is done, yeah. everything will go yeah. back to the way it was. Well, I'm sorry. There's absolutely no guarantee of that. Yeah. Do you, um, let me ask you this. Hmm. How much plan and thought do you think has gone into this as an actual agenda? And do you think that Australians have been purposely conditioned to be more compliant for something like this to come along and play out the way it has particularly here yeah so this is an interesting one because i get a lot of people reaching out to my facebook page or sending me emails and and wanting to discuss uh, the agenda and, and and everything from people wanting to discuss the world economic forum and the great reset which is not a conspiracy theory that's actually they stand up there and they tell us this is what we want to do like that's not a conspiracy yeah. right through to people who want me to to you know there's there's lizard people running the world and the queen has been swapped for a body double kind of <laughs> like and I, I get everyone everyone in between so here's where i sit on this i am i will assume that someone is incompetent and under perverse incentives before I will necessarily assume that they're a part of a grand conspiracy. Let's not forget um, that, that governments are so incredibly incompetent. They, they literally couldn't organize a route in a brothel. It's they, they, they have no organizational capacity whatsoever. And yet we have these people who want to believe that they are operating these grand conspiracies with all of these crisis actors and all of these, these people and those people, and everyone's in on it. No one's leaking and Blah, 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 right? Well, I'm sorry. I, I actually don't, I don't believe in government competence to that level where they could pull off uh, something like that. But what explains what we're seeing equally well 
is a combination of a few factors that compound each other. First and foremost, politics attracts people who are ideologically driven. And the ideology that it attracts is people who think that government is the answer, not the problem, right? I think government most of the time is the problem, not the answer. So I'm not that interested in going into politics. Why would I? I want to go into business where I think actually things get created and made and the world becomes a better place. I don't want to go into politics. But that neighbor that looks over your fence to make sure that you're not doing the wrong thing in your backyard, that nosy person who wants to always be imposing the jackboot onto their neighbors, that's the personality that's attracted to politics and to public service in the first place. So we have a disproportionate skew and an overwhelming disproportionate skew in politics of that type of personality. Secondly, because so much power is concentrated there and so much money is concentrated there, they get surrounded by advisors, by lobbyists, by everyone else who wants to reinforce that view. They're not there to challenge the politicians. They're there to pander to the politicians. Yes, oh, you're so wise. You're so clever. Yes, that'll fix that problem. You just need to make sure that you put enough budget behind it so that my business can get the contract and blah, 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 right? So we have this circular feedback loop where these people are all talking to each other and looking to each other for advice. The politician looks to the advisor. The advisor is not going to tell the politician what he doesn't want to hear because he wants to keep his cushy advising job. So we've got this really awful feedback loop that confirms all of the worst aspects of the personalities of the people that have gotten into politics. <clears throat> you then compound that with the incorrect perception of knowledge. What politicians have access to is a lot of data. They can go to a department and say, give me the latest report on jobs or give me the latest whatever, right? And they can read a jobs report and understand exactly how many, how many new, new jobs were created, how many were lost, how many people are, are employed in the occupation that they studied at university and how many are not, da, da, da. They can get all of this data, but they can know all of that data intimately. It doesn't mean they know how to do a single one of those jobs. There is a, there is a confusion between data and knowledge. And these people, because of that, that information feedback loop, they read data. They say, oh, based on the data, we should do this thing. They're completely off the wall. They've got absolutely no idea what they're doing because they have no knowledge of what they're actually controlling. But there's this feedback loop of people. Oh, yes, that's a great idea. You should definitely do that. Just make sure you put enough money behind it. And so this becomes this really perverse situation where you've got these people who are absolutely sure that they're right and they have the data to back them up. Then you introduce a pandemic, a crisis, and now you add this really awful layer on top, which, which explains where we are right now. The world needs saving. The media said that the world is in trouble and who needs to save the world according to the kind of personality that's attracted to politics? The government, the government is the solution. So now all of that positive feedback that they've had for how smart they are and how clever they are and how much the world needs them is now amplified by this sense of urgency and this sense of righteousness. We're saving the world. We are now the Avengers, right? And we are saving the world from this awful thing. And when you put all of that together, what happens is all of their ideologies come out. So Daniel Andrews, I'm convinced he's both a psychopath. And I mean that in the literal psychological sense, not in the Hollywood act murdering sense. He's a literal psychopath. Yep. Um, but he's also a, a you know, well, he's a narcissist, which is, which is part of that. Um, and when he, when he gets told the world is depending on you, the entire state of Victoria is going to get overrun. There's going to be hundreds of thousands of people dead in the streets. He just goes, I was born for this moment. This is my, I'm, I'm Winston Churchill now. This is my destiny. And everyone around him is feeding that idea. And so now he will do whatever he thinks is right in order to fix the problem. Now, he's also a Marxist. 
And he believes that absolute government power is a good thing. He believes that he's right about everything. And so why would anyone oppose what he wants to do? He's right and he's saving the world and you ungrateful people don't understand what I'm doing for you. This is what we've got now. And that's been amplified around the world a bunch of different times. And these people get together and they talk. And they're all like, you know what we need to do? We need to have a bigger, you know, super, super national body that takes care of these things. Yeah, it's a great idea. Let's attach to the UN, blah, blah, blah. They, because they believe that more power and more centralized power is the solution. And they're also crafting their, um, their future career pathway. The most blatant for this one was Kevin Rudd. He didn't view being the Australian Prime Minister as an honour to be the Australian Prime Minister. He viewed it as a job interview to become Secretary General of the UN after he retired out of being the Australian Prime Minister. He, he was looking at his pathway forward. So all of these people have these perverse incentives to concentrate power onto themselves, believing that they're saving the world, but then also to invest that power upwards into these supernational bodies that they then plan to have their career in going forward. And they're creating a career pathway where they get to get out of pesky politics and elections and constituents and all that nasty stuff. And they just get to go and have the power without having to deal with any of the realities of, of politics. That goes about 90% of the way in my opinion, to explaining the, the appearance of a conspiracy. There's all these people doing the same thing at the same time. Yes, because of the same personality types in a similarly flawed system with similarly perverse incentives and they're all talking to each other. That goes about 90% of the way. And then into that, there are without doubt individuals, organizations, whether they're political groups or commercial interests, et cetera, who are definitely trying to manipulate this for their own benefit. There are certainly people that are sitting there in a boardroom going, how do we make money off this? That's, that's without question. How do we use this to increase the amount of power that we've got, the clout that we've got? That Without question, that's happening. But I think that's maybe only about 5 to 10% of it. And about 90% of it is literally just the awful reality of the human nature of the people who are attracted to politics combined with this toxic cocktail of the, the, the feedback loop, the, the perception of brilliance, uh, and then the urgent need to save the world. You put it all together and that's where we are. And so, yeah, so when you hear people talking about de depopulation agendas and all that, do you think that's just rubbish or do you think there's- No, it's not rubbish. It's, there are some very small groups that, that believe in that, absolutely. Um, you know, you, when you look at people, things like the Georgia Guidestones, someone paid to put those up, all right? Now, how big of a group do they represent? I've no idea. You know, is, is this just the philosophy of one particularly wealthy individual who kind of wanted to fuck with everybody? Or, or is it actually representative of some big group working in the shadows and trying to control governments to depopulate the world? I, I don't know. There is also a lot of misinformation. So Bill Gates is one of these ones where everyone's like, he wants to depopulate the world. Well, he believes we're overpopulated. Um, but I've watched these videos where, they, where they're trying to say, oh, yes, Melinda Gates has said that, they, that they're going to depopulate the world. They're going to blah, blah, blah. And I listened to what she actually says in the interview. I'm like, no, no, that's, that isn't what actually she said. And I don't think it's even what she inferred. It can be inferred if you, if you bring that preconceived notion into the video and then you listen to what she said. It can be inferred, but I don't think it's there. Let me give you an example. I grew up in a conservative uh, Christian household. And one of the really funny things that happened while, while I was growing up, while I was a teenager, was there was this kind of Pentecostal movement in the church. And there were then a whole bunch of people. So there were these, these preachers traveling around the world preaching um, and praying for people and all the rest of it. And then there were all these people trying to tear down the people that are traveling around the preaching. Oh, they're frauds. They're Satanists. They're, they're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing kind of stuff. And it's very reminiscent of all the conspiracy theory stuff going on right now and i remember you know and i'd kind of bought into the whole their frauds side of that argument until i watched a video and 
what it, 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 like it literally had me laughing and this was back when you had to get the video on vhs and actually like put it into a machine and, and watch it and then you'd make a copy and give it to somebody um it literally had me laughing because what they've done is they've taken this moment where someone's doing all the whole praying Pentecostal thing and they've laid hands on somebody and they've, they've said whatever. Uh, and then they've stopped praying for them, turned around and they've just kind of whilst almost sort of breathing out uh, into the microphone with a big stadium of people that just said, that's glorious, ain't it? But what they did was they slowed it down and like, he said, that's glory, Satan. Listen, listen carefully. I slowed it down. And like they're manipulating the sound and manipulating people's minds to hear something that wasn't actually there. And they stopped the video at another point in time when the guy's pointing with his arm and he had a light colored collared shirt on and there were creases in here, vertical creases, because he was moving his arm and they stopped it and they brought up a picture of Behemothet or whatever it is, the God that has like the, the four horns or whatever. And yeah, and, and they're like, look, look at the lines on the shirt. They're, they're in the formation of the four horns of, of, yeah. And you're like, you've lost your mind. Like this is this is insane stuff. And that kind of broke when I saw just how crazy that was. It kind of broke the whole thing for me. And I was like, I, I actually don't care anymore. Let them do them. Let them do them. I, I'm not that interested anymore. But there's a certain degree where people are doing that. They're going through Bill and Melinda Gates interviews with that kind of. We already know what you've said. We've just got to find where you said it kind of kind of vigilantism almost on what they've said now does that mean that no one wants to depopulate the world definitely not there are people out there who are serious about it i actually personally know someone who's quite serious about it um would they go as far as genocide among their number there, there may very well be a very small number of people who might um is there some grand plan amongst the governments of the world to depopulate the earth and exterminate a whole bunch of the earth's population no i find that extremely uh incredible in the literal sense of that word it is, it is not a credible um thing to maintain the secrecy that would be necessary around that the you know it, it, it just isn't it just isn't happening there would be individuals who may want to do that some of them may have some influence and may have some power but it would be that situation of they have to keep their true agenda to themselves whilst manipulating other people to do the things that they want done if they were out there openly discussing that agenda with other world leaders it would not go well for them yeah, well, that's what I that's what I'm curious your thoughts, because you just said before about how, you know, everyone's just kind of, um, you know, uh, sucking up to the person that they work for. So if, if there's things that come down from the top to the bottom where everyone's just doing their job, they're just doing what the other person tells them to do. And they don't really care about like looking into what's happening. Yeah, sure. But I mean, if you turned around to Victoria Police and said, hey, all of these lockdowns are part of an agenda to bring about a, a communist Chinese party style social credit system in Victoria uh, so that ultimately we can strip everybody of their personal belongings and you will own nothing and you'll be happy. A lot of Victoria police would be like, well, fuck no, I'm not okay with that because I live here and my family's here, right? If you tell Victoria police, this is a public health emergency and we absolutely need you to clear the streets because otherwise the disease is going to get spread that could kill your grandma. Now they'll do what they're mm -hmm. told, right? So whilst there may be people at the top who have these certain agendas, they're not discussing the agenda with the people beneath them. Mm -hmm. They've broken it down into the most immediate need and saying what needs to happen next is this, and they will always frame it in the context of something that makes them righteous. The people that stood on the guard towers at Auschwitz thought they were the good guys, mm -hmm. right? Because their position and their job had been presented to them and couched in terms of improving humanity. That's, that's the mission that Hitler was on in his own delusional mind. He thought he was making the world a better place. And this is what makes these people so dangerous and so incredibly gullible. 
Um, so I'm not saying that it's not happening, but I don't believe that it's being widely discussed. I think if there are a small cabal of yeah. people that have that agenda, they're not telling the rest of them. They're just working on the next thing that they need that particular person to do. Exactly. That's what I was trying to say is that like there could be, it's just they're not, everyone's on that need to know basis and they don't need to know. Yeah, but I, I still find myself very skeptical. Now, I mean, sorry, no, I'm absolutely certain that there are people who want that to happen and think that that's the right thing to have happen. Um, I find it very skeptical that they, I, I find myself very skeptical of the idea that they are in such positions of power that they are essentially these puppeteer string pullers at the top. I don't think so. I think of it more as herding cats. Okay. They, they have this, this idea of how they want the world to be and how they want the world to be is the equivalent of having 20 different kittens in a basket at the same time. Right, and those kittens have minds of their own, and they're all crawling out and doing their own thing. And then they, you know, two of them end up in the corner fighting with each other, and one of them's taking a leak on on a pot plant, and etc. And they're trying to herd these guys in. I think that's probably a, a better analogy for what these guys are trying to do as they try and manipulate the world, rather than this puppeteer on a string type of analogy. Well, I mean, there's probably, uh, from where I'm looking, a deep understanding of the nature of human psychology of those underneath them, which which is being purported from from the top level yeah and look I, again I, I would go to someone like daniel andrews and, and people just asked me last night i did a live last night on my facebook page and people were asking me oh how does he maintain his grip on power how come his own party haven't kicked him out yet and and my my best answer to that is because he understands human psychology um he is a psychopath he's an incredibly strong personality type uh, and he rules by ensuring that he is frightening to the people under him based on his understanding of their of their psychology. Uh, and is that unique to Daniel Andrews? Of course not. That's happening right across the board. Um, so there's a, there is an enormous amount of psychological manipulation going on. Um, but as to whether I think there is some grand conspiracy that is being successfully played out, mm -hmm. are there people who want to do it? Yes. Is this part of a grand conspiracy that is being successfully played out across the world? No, I don't think so. I think... The, the virus uh, leaked. There may or may not have been some level of intent in that. I don't know. It's very likely that it leaked from the Wuhan lab. It's a lab. It seems certain that Fauci was helping to fund that and the National Institute of Health in, in the US were, were helping to fund that research. Um, so there's certainly a lot of, there's conspiracy in that sense where they've tried to cover up their complicity in the existence of the research. You got was event the, 201 in there. This the whole situation sorry? that happened. Event 201. Yeah, you've got that. But again, people, you know, th those things do happen from time to time. There are people whose job it is to be prepared for the next Black Plague or the next whatever. I, I don't automatically go, oh, they were training for it. You know, it it's, it's like blaming a house fire on a firefighter going, well, just last week you were training how to fight house fires. Well, right. There's, there's a certain degree of that. that we have yeah. to, we, we can't be too quick to jump on something and just say, ah, therefore, right. Yeah. There are other rational explanations for why these sorts of exercises exist. Uh, however, what I would say without doubt is there's been an enormous amount of opportunism. The minute that virus was out, politicians with ideologies that they wanted to pursue and power that they wanted to take for themselves, uh, the UN and other bodies have all jumped on this and they are making hay while the sun shines. I think that can be said with absolute certainty is that's the best case scenario. And there are people who disagree with me and that's fine and say, actually, no, there, were, there was intent. This is a part of a bigger plan. Personally, I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I'm one of the people that dismissed the lab leak when it, theory when it first came out, right? So I've, I've already had to you know, eat humble pie and yeah. admit to some of the conspiracy theory types that I was a bit too optimistic and a bit too nice and, and didn't want to believe some of, the, some of the theories. So 
uh, I'm certainly not going to say that you're definitely wrong. I'm just going to say I'm not there yet. Yep. Yeah. Not here, man. I mean, the fact of the matter is like, there's like, how, how, how do we explain the role of large pharmaceutical corporations in all this that are, you mean, obviously banking more than anyone and the, the, their involvement and to what extent these politicians are serving the, the funders of yeah. well, and the flow of the money, you know? Yeah, and there's some there's some great questions there, and and again, my position would be if I was a pharmaceutical company and a, a this disease came up and I knew that the government was going to start spending billions upon billions upon billions of dollars on vaccines, yeah, of course we're going to try and get in on that. Um, doesn't mean that I paid somebody to leak the the virus in the first place. It just yep. means that that I'm I, you know I've got shareholders and I've got stock options as part of my bonus, and I want to be able to retire in two years' time having made the company an extra 200 billion dollars and think about the size of my golden parachute and how big how big's my rolex going to be then you know yeah. when they when i take the, the retirement package so there's a lot of perverse incentive and i think perverse incentive like i said before goes probably 90 percent of the way to explaining what's happening and then in amongst all of that there are individuals who have had agendas uh and are pursuing those agendas right now yeah. And with, with corporations as well, you know, you have psychopaths that rise to the top of corporations, you know, again, from a psychological standpoint, so. these, are, these are the people that rise up to the top. So yeah. if there's an yeah. event that's going 100%. on in the world, how can we take advantage of it? And it's not about like, oh, are we going to impact millions of lives in a negative way? They're thinking about themselves. That's correct. That's yeah, spot on. So I, I have read, I don't, I don't place a huge amount of value in, in psychology, but I have read uh, a, a study that claims to have found that roughly one in a hundred people that are born has a psychopathic personality and that roughly one in 25 of all politicians and all the high level business executives are psychopaths. So those positions are attractive to psychopaths and they disproportionately find their way into those positions. And what that means is that at any given moment in time in somewhere like the Victorian parliament, there's at any given moment in time, there's three to six psychopaths. If you look at the upper and lower house, you know, federal parliament, there's this sort of, you know, the same as there could be five or six psychopaths at any given moment in time. And it makes sense that eventually mm. one of them is going to become the prime minister. One of them is going to become the premier in the case of Victoria, where I, I think we have a psychopath right now. Psychopaths rise to the tops of some of these companies. And the more questionable the activities of the company, I mean, pharmaceutical companies have to meddle in some really, really difficult ethical decisions. Um, so, but what if you as a person, you're not bothered by those ethical decisions? It's easy for you. Well, disproportionately, you will succeed within that company. You will rise to the top of that company disproportionately compared to somebody who agonizes over the ethics of the decisions that they're making. So, yeah, I think we're seeing a, a confluence of, of or, or the addition of, yeah, there's a number of psychopaths and a number of key positions who are now leveraging and taking advantage of the situation that we've described. I really um, appreciate your pragmatic viewpoint of all this and how, how grounded it is because I you mean that we, we are getting a lot from the other side of the over conspiratorial. I in fact yeah. feel like I'm talking to my dad right now. It's me saying it's all a conspiracy and he's saying, no, these are just <laughs> fucking idiots, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think, I think, I think it's really necessary, man. Um, so. And, and I think, I think the truth yeah. is like with the lab leak theory that I dismissed uh, and, and I now accept that there's a 99% chance that it was the lab leak. Like that, that seems to be the, the number one most likely source of it. Um, you know, there, there probably is a little bit of both. Just just because conspiracy, yeah. you know, just because among the conspiracy theory world, there are people banging on about shape-shifting lizard people uh, mm -hmm. doesn't mean the person saying, actually, I think that virus came from a lab is also, you know, a, a complete nut job. 
apologies to anybody who believes in shape-shifting lizard people, but seriously, lay off the drugs. Lizard people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, and, and this is this is one of the problems, and this is why the conspiracy theory slur is so effective, right? And you see, they pull it out in the media all the time. As soon as someone doesn't agree with the mainstream narrative, they attach the conspiracy theory slur. They did it to the lab leak theory. While, while we're talking about that, they literally they called that a conspiracy theory for how long? Before all of a sudden, in about two weeks, the whole narrative flipped on its head and suddenly that was the accepted theory. And oh, by the way, we knew all along, we accepted it all along, kind of, you know, ass covering approach from, from the media. The, but the reason why that slur is so effective is because unfortunately, we do have people who are pretty out there and going on about some pretty out there stuff that, I'm sorry, doesn't have anything resembling a substantial backing and i've met you know I, I i meet a lot of these people through my work I, I don't know i attract i attract a number of them and i have these conversations that i've kind of stopped having because they, they go down the same path and they get very surreal and you end up with at the point where they're saying to you that the lack of evidence is the proof right of course i can't prove it they covered it up you know and everything ends up being a cover-up and a conspiracy theory and no no one's leaking because they're so afraid of the shape-shifting lizard people why would they and you kind of like at this point we can't even have a discussion right yeah. so here's my triage on conspiracy theories here's how i decide what i'm going to pay any attention to at all and and what i'm just going to go you know what it's not relevant <clears throat> something has to meet two criteria in order for me to um to actually pay it any attention at all is there any way for me to verify it or to be able to assess the sources of information and, and, and pick one to actually believe? Is that even possible? Because if that's not even possible, then why are you putting energy into something? If, you, if there is no way for you to actually intelligently assess the veracity of what you're looking at, why are you putting any information into it? And the second piece of triage is, would it change anything about how I live or what I do if it were true? Because if the reality of what you do and how you live would not change, why does it matter? Okay, it matters because there's a grand... Okay, but what can you do about it? How does that affect what you do and how you live and who you are in the world? Because here's the problem. <clears throat> Every ounce of energy that you invest into something that you can't change or you can't fix or you can't help is energy that you are not investing into the things that you can change and you can help. And sitting there investing all of your energy into a conspiracy theory that you can neither verify, and even if it was true, it wouldn't change how you live. There's nothing you can actually do about it. Means that you're not investing energy into your family, into your neighbor who might be struggling, into your own business so that you can improve your financial situation so that maybe you'll have more options in the future for how you live. That energy is coming from somewhere, right? And I personally know people who are literally pushing themselves to the brink psychologically because they are obsessing so deeply and so hard about conspiracy theories that they can neither verify nor would it change anything in terms of how they live on a day-to-day -day basis if it were true. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying they cannot know that it's right. And yeah. even if it was right, it wouldn't change anything, but it's absorbing all of their focus, their time, their energy reserves, their psychological reserves. And some of these guys are pushing themselves pretty freaking close to, to just going over the edge. Yeah. And I sit there and go, there's no value in that for you. There's no value in that for your family. You need to bring yourself back to where you're investing your energy <clears throat> and your focus into things that actually make a difference in your life. And then once you've got an abundance in your life, maybe you can spend 
brain time and, and emotional time on these other things. But you know, while you're struggling financially, while your wife is struggling emotionally with all the lockdowns, while your kids are going out of their minds, maybe, maybe just invest that energy into them first. Yeah, no, I hear you, man. And I absolutely agree. Um, certainly. I want to ask you, how has it been for you and your family coping with the lockdowns personally? Like the, obviously it's been a big transformation for all of us. Yeah. So I ignore the lockdowns as much as is humanly possible. Uh, good people break bad laws. That's, that's not just a slogan. Um, the, the government basically down here, I'll, I'll give you the most extreme example. They shut down the playgrounds. And they said, you couldn't even take your kids to a playground, an outdoor playground in the sunshine uh, where there's been absolutely no record of, of the coronavirus being transmitted in an outdoor setting at all in Australia. <coughs> and what that means, if you, if you put that in conjunction with all of the other uh, restrictions that were already in place, it means my kid can't go to school. My kid can't go to church. My kid can't visit friends. My kid can't visit family. My kid can't go to any of the organized sports and activities that they used to do with other people their age. And they're locked inside their house 23 hours a day, not allowed to leave. And now for that one hour of yard time, prison exercise that we were given, they're not even allowed to go to a playground, yeah. right? Now, if I did that to my child, if I, as a dad in 2019, had just turned around and gone, right, I'm pulling you out of school. We're not going to church. You're not seeing your friends. You're not seeing your family. I'm locking you inside your house, locking you inside the house for 23 hours a day, pulling you out of all of your sports. And by the way, we're not even going to the park. I would go to jail for child abuse. Yeah. Right. I mean, I might as well chain them to the bed at that point. Right. That's, that, that is extreme psychological abuse of a child to do that to them. Just because the government is the one psychologically abusing children doesn't make it right. Mm -hmm. right just because it's their orders and their instructions that doesn't make it right yeah. so if i participated in that i would be participating in the abuse of my own child i'm not going to do that that's a bad law and if i'm forced to choose between being a good dad or being a good citizen i'm going to choose to be a good dad so the impact on my family has been less than what it's been on a lot of other people because i choose to be a good dad i choose to break bad laws we went to the parks the whole way through and i look, i've said this many times before i'm not secret about this you know <laughs> i'll get to that in a minute um, remind me when the police came to the door remind me what they what they said and and what my reply was but i'm not trying to be secretive about this yeah. okay uh, i'm trying to set an example and i'm trying to appeal to the consciences of the police officers i mean police watch everything i put up and they're combing through it, looking for reasons to arrest me or looking for reasons to whatever, okay? And there's two, there's two approaches to that. You can try and be super secretive and not talk about what's happening or blah, blah, blah. Or you can be so upfront about it that it actually shames them. And when I sit here and I go, you've got a choice. You can choose to be a, a good dad or a good citizen. They're sitting there knowing that for them, in a lot of cases, they've made decisions as a police officer that weren't good. They chose to follow bad orders. They chose to follow bad laws. Now, what's really interesting to me is I haven't yet been arrested. Uh, I've made all the preparations for in the event that I am arrested. It's actually kind of fun what would happen. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to get arrested, but there's a little part of me that's like, yeah, but if you did, uh, <laughs> uh, because it's all in place. All right. I've got a 12 year history of, of being a political commentator. I have connections in media and politics all over the world and very deep connections here in Australia. It, I've basically turned myself into a landmine. And if they arrest me, the media attention and focus uh, and the kind of content that is going to be coming out at that point is going to absolutely, uh, I'm a landmine, right? Um, and there is, a, there is a part of me having put the effort into putting all of that in place 
and having all the right people in the right places who all understand what their job is and what their part to play is in the event that I do get arrested. There's just that little part of me that's like, yeah, but come on. <laughs> um, so, so, but however, the, in the main, I, I would much rather not because that's a headache I don't, I don't need. I love my kids. I want to be there for them. Uh, and if they try and Im impose ridiculous bail conditions on me the way that they tried to do to um, Monica Schmidt, then I would be obliged to do the same thing that she did and just say, no, I'm not accepting those bail conditions and I'm going to stay in prison until we can get the bail conditions to a point where I think they're actually acceptable. So in coming back to my family, so it hasn't affected us as much as it's affected others. Um, I haven't been able to earn very much through this time. My wife, thankfully, has been able to keep her business going. It's been a very turbulent time for her business, very up and down, but we're okay. We're surviving. So psychologically, in terms of my kids and, and what their experience has been less bad than it has been for others, financially less bad than it has been for others. So we're kind of getting through it okay. The one thing that's been worse than, than for most others is the amount of police attention that I've been getting because I'm very upfront and I'm very public and I talk about what I talk about. So I've had the police knocking on my front door on multiple occasions now trying to intimidate me with paperwork or letters or just their very presence at the door. You know, you, you've, got, you've got a gang of four armed uh, officers showing up at the front door of the house where your wife and kids live. Uh, it doesn't matter how nice and courteous they are that's still intimidation. That's still an intimidation tactic uh, designed to, to get you to, to not sleep at night. And, and you know, I, I, I do have my moments where I'll, I'll be in bed or I'll be, it'll just be daytime and I'll hear multiple car doors closing doop, 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 out the front of the house. I'm like, oh shit, is this it? You know, mm -hmm. and I'll have my phone and ready to start live streaming, ready, ready, to, ready to go if there's a knock at the door. You know, so um, psychologically, that element of it has, has had its challenges. I am incredibly lucky that I'm married to someone who is 100% on board. Mm -hmm. It's very, very difficult for people where the family itself is split. That's a really challenging, challenging mm -hmm. situation. I'm lucky that if anything, my wife is actually more extreme than me. Uh, and I'm the one telling her to settle down a little bit. And, and she gloats, she gloats. Because in, in, I don't know, it was mid-2020, she said to me, we're going to end up with army on the streets. They're going to end up deploying the army. To, to, to lock down the city. And I said, babe, settle down. That's ridiculous. Let's not go that far. Let's not, you know, let, again, let's not torture ourselves mentally with things that we can't control and don't really change anything in terms of how we react, even if that were true. Well, sure enough, whenever it was, I don't remember, the army get called out to join up with the police on the ring of steel where they completely separated Melbourne from the rest of the state of Victoria. And my wife has never let me forget it since. Okay, so Tova, real quick, I just have to jump in since you said she's more extreme to you. Does your wife believe in lizard people running the planet? <laughs> no, no, she, she doesn't. Uh, aliens building the pyramids. I don't know, maybe. No, okay, uh, no cool. so not, in, not in that sense, but she she uh, so angry at the government and she is so angry at police and so angry at politicians. Um, she She's basically, she's she is quicker than I am to get to the conclusion that we need to leave. We need to get out, right? Now, we haven't made that decision finally in, in finality. Uh, there's a, there's a, this has a lot more to play out and I'm going to keep fighting and keep doing what I'm doing and trying to get a, a, a good outcome out of all of this before we finally pull the trigger on that. But she is, she is more concerned and more, um, not, not negative, too, too unpleasant of a word, um, more pessimistic about how this is going to play out than what I am. And she is quicker to want to make plans and, and plan B and just just F off out of the country. Now, I said before um, to remind me what, um, what the, the police, police said, said to me. Yeah. So 
on one of the visits to my door, <clears throat> um, it was two days after a protest that I was at. They show up at my door and this is, I live streamed this. You can find the video on my Facebook page. Uh, they said to me, ah, oh, we've been reviewing all the police footage of the protest and we've identified that you were there. And they obviously, what they wanted was for me to admit that I was there. They wanted me to, to implicate myself and admit that I was there, okay? Um, and I, I literally laughed and I said, mate, you didn't have to look through the police footage. I was live streaming. You could have just looked at my footage and seen that I was there, right? Right? Don't come in with, oh, we looked at the police footage. Come yeah. on, man. Thousands of people were watching me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so I've, taken, I've taken the philosophical approach of being on the front foot about all of this. I don't try and hide. I don't try and stay anonymous. I don't try. I don't apologize for or hide the fact that I break the bad laws that, that I deem are morally wrong. I will comply with something that I think is practically wrong. It's the wrong approach. Like when they came out with the two weeks to flatten the curve, okay? At the very start of all this, March, 2020, there's this virus, it's in Australia. It might overwhelm our healthcare capacity. We want you, they, went, they were saying, don't wear masks back then. Back then the wisdom was the masks don't work. Uh, don't wear masks, but socially distance and don't all cram into stores and blah, 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 okay? I went along with that. I was pretty sure it was a dumb idea because I'd been reading the studies put out by Johnny Ioannidis and other epidemiologists that told us the actual data of what was going on. So I was pretty sure it was a dumb idea, but I didn't feel that it rose to being a moral issue at that point, right? And so I went along with it for two weeks. And it was after that morphed and they then started extending it. And, and we, we went from two weeks to flatten the curve to protect the healthcare system to all of a sudden we went to COVID zero. We're not stopping until there's no COVID in this country. We're going to lock it out forever. And at that point I went, no, this is morally wrong. This, this, this is not just a matter of disagreements in practicality. This aim is a morally wrong aim because of the amount of destruction that it's going to do in order to achieve that, that particular aim. And that's when I started to disobey. So I'm not in the business of just disobeying for the sake of it. I'm not in the, in the business of, of just being difficult for the sake of it. But when something is morally wrong, when a law is doing more harm than good, which I think it, these lockdowns patently are, then at that point, I think you have a moral obligation to disobey. And I've chosen to be very public about that disobedience. I hear you, man. Um, and I wholeheartedly agree. And I can certainly relate to you with the whole police thing as well. I'm someone that's been outspoken. I've been at the protests. I've had the police knocking at my door. And it, it is quite a um, distressing thing when, when that, when that takes place, you know, I mean, my family recognizes the knock of a policeman now, you know, and it's, yeah. my kids yeah. are like, it's the police because it's happened, yeah. happened a few times. Um, yeah. on, on that note, I want to ask you, like, obviously we've seen an incredible erosion of our basic human rights, freedoms and liberties mm -hmm. through, through this process, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I want to I want to know from from your perspective, um, do you think there's a political history with that that has led to this moment of of, yeah. of this is a symptom, yeah. not a what what we've got going on now is a symptom. It's not actually it's not actually the root cause. It's not actually the problem. The problem I would trace in Australia back to and and this came up in the the, the my life uh, my slow chat last night. Um, I would trace it back to at least as far as Gough Whitlam as prime minister in the late 1960s, but not specifically with Gough Whitlam, but with an Australian population that would vote for a Gough Whitlam. That's the problem, yeah. right? The politician is a symptom. Daniel Andrews is a symptom. He's a symptom of how incredibly foolish the Victorian people are. And so what we've got is a situation where at least since the early 60s to then lead to the election of Gough Whitlam in the late 60s, 
we have been culturally allowing ourselves to value the wrong things. We have stopped valuing entrepreneurship, enterprise, job creation, value creation, etc., And we have begun to value victimhood and victim status. And, you know, there's, there's this truism. You get more of what you reward and you get less of what you punish. What we punish now are hardworking people who, who create value. We punish them with taxes. We punish them with regulations. <clears throat> we punish them by saying they're not paying their fair share. We make their life as difficult as possible. What do we reward? We reward people who can spin a good story about how big of a victim they are. And we give them money and we give them legal aid. And we give them all kinds of different things to try and make their life better. So it's no surprise. We get more of the thing we reward and we're getting less and less and less of the thing that we punish. It's... And, and that's been happening, in my opinion, since the 60s. So the, the yes, all of the COVID stuff has only happened in the last 18 months. But if COVID had come along in the 1960s, could they have done what they've done? No, not even close. And not just because of the technological differences, People. because of the cultural differences, the culture would never have tolerated it. They would never have put up with it. They said, this is absolute nonsense. You can't just be shutting down people's businesses, locking people's kids inside. They wouldn't have stood for it. But culturally, fast forward 60 years on, or you know, 50 years on, we are absolutely putting up with it. And in fact, in my opinion, uh, there's a majority of Victorians still, even to this day, that actually like it. They like the feeling like they're being protected by daddy government. What we're facing now is a symptom. It is a mm-hmm. symptom of how foolish we as a population have become. And the real work that we have to do is not just to get back to 2019. We have to get back to a level where culturally and politically what happened in 2019-20 is no longer possible. Where if someone tried, they would get thrown out of power on their ass. And until we get back to that point, we're in danger of it happening again. This won't be the last emergency that the government has to save us from. Yeah. Have you seen a Yuri Bezmenov's testimony of socialist subversion of a culture? I what have I I've I've read a, a summary of something that he wrote, but no, I don't believe I've ever um, seen what you're mentioning there. It's an interview he did with uh, G. Edward Griffin uh, in okay. 1984, and it's like an hour and 20 minute video uh, interview. But I feel like the last 15 minutes or something that have gone around the internet a long time. And he talks about how uh, an entire society can be subverted through different mm-hmm. avenues. So something yeah, like okay. be it media, oh, yeah. be it education, um, like there's like there could be a purported decline of of the of the culture is what is what yeah. basically. Well, it's it, it's no it's no coincidence. Let me say mm. uh, that the timeline that I'm talking about here, late '60s onwards, um, <clears throat> coincides fairly closely with the Cloward Piven strategy. Uh, are you, you guys familiar with that? No. Mm-mm. Okay, so Cloward Piven were a a couple um, that postulated a theory that basically said we can introduce communism into the US by overworking their welfare system and collapsing capitalism through that process. Uh, and there, simultaneous with that, there was the separately, but simultaneously, there's the philosophy of the march through the institutions of Marxists taking power in universities and in Hollywood and in media and so forth. And when you look at these various strategies, you say, well, right now we have, we clearly have a very Marxist uh, reality inside our politics, inside our entertainment media, inside our news media, etc. There are disproportionately high number of hardcore Marxists and soft lefties. That, you know, between those two, you've got sort of 90% of, of everyone that works in, in those areas covered. <clears throat> we've, we've got an out-of-control welfare state that is not sustainable and will financially collapse this country. The US is going to financially collapse just on unfunded funded liabilities, etc. When, I don't know, but it is an inevitability. You cannot... You, you can, you can defy gravity for as long as you've got fuel in the tank, 
But then once that fuel runs out, you can only glide for so long, right? And that's where we're at right now. We're, we're, we're trying to defy gravity and we've got nothing left in the tank. Um, the March through the institutions is happening. The, the uh, Cloward Piven strategy is, is working very successfully where welfare dependency is the highest that it's ever been. More than half of all Australian households receive some sort of government payment, right? More than half of all Australian households receive a government payment. Um, it, it's absolutely mind blowing. And, and you've got a massive problem once you cross that threshold. How do you wind that back? How is it politically possible to wind back a welfare state that more than half of the voting population is dependent on? Yeah. Right? You, 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 there's a tipping point there. There's a point of no return. And I, I suspect that we're already on the wrong side of it. Um, so we've got a lot of work to do to, if, if we're going to save us from what, what is, I think, in hindsight, going to be viewed as a very successful, if somewhat slow, strategy that has been rolled out, the march through the institutions, the cloud pivot strategy, the propaganda side of things, where ultimately we are approaching the point where we we have that capitalist collapse that the communists have always wanted us to have, which in their mind is their opportunity to introduce communism. And now they've rebranded communism into um, um, universal basic income. Right, and, and so they've, they've rebranded it, they've put it into different terms, they've got people with, with um, economics degrees and no brains spouting it, uh, but ultimately that's what it is. They, they, they're pushing closer to that point where there will be a collapse. They will then say, hey, capitalism has failed, here's our solution for you, and it will be rebranded Marxism. That's, that's all it's going to be. Yeah, I hear you, man. I want to ask you one more question on the public side of this episode before we head into the, yep. the member side of things. Do you think Australia sure. would be better off with guns right now? I, I think as a matter of, so, so would, would it be better off? That's a question of utilitarianism. Mm -hmm. I, let me answer a question of principle first. The, regardless of the outcome, the, the actual underlying human rights principle is that they should never have been removed, right? So, so let me start there. Um, a, a free people can arm themselves if they wish, and they do not need the government's permission. Okay, simple as that. So they should never have been removed purely on principle. If you wanna talk about a matter of pragmatism, it's interesting. Uh, would there be more gun violence in Australia if we had more guns? Probably, but not definitely. The stats are really interesting on that. Um, and we already had a, a declining overall murder rate before the gun ban in 1996. That murder rate has continued to decline since then with a few little bumps and ups and downs. Um, it's hard to argue. And in fact, a, a research was done on this to try and find a statistically significant deviation in the overall murder rate, in the decline of the overall murder rate post the gun ban, and found that actually, no, there's no statistically significant change in that decline. Um, so would there be more murders overall? Maybe. Uh, would there be more gun crime? Yes, because if there's more of them around as an implement, someone's going to reach for them more often in order to rob a store or hold somebody up or what have you. But people say, oh, I don't want to be like America. Okay, but even when we had the same guns as America, Australia wasn't like America. Our murder rate has been about a quarter of America's murder rate for basically our entire history. We're, we're culturally substantially different people. And even when we had guns, we weren't running around doing each other, doing to each other the sorts of stuff that they're doing on the south side of Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't have that in Australia. <clears throat> um, but then we come to, I think, the, the purpose of the question, which is the political implications of an armed population. Yeah. Would things be different politically if the population was armed? And that's a really interesting one. And, and 
part of me says yes, and I can make a case for that. And part of me says no, and I can make a case for that as well. So let me fence, fence sit and put both sides of the argument simultaneously. <clears throat> On the one hand, yes, I think there is a a dampening effect that an armed population has on the ambitions of politicians. When, when, when you can show up to a protest, as we've seen happen in the US before, and they're open carrying, weapons aren't raised, no aggression, all right, but they're open carrying, the police don't tend to get in their faces too much. It's funny mm. how that works, right? <laughs> they tend to be allowed to walk down the street and have their little march and, and chant their slogans and all go home in peace. It's, it's weird, right? Um, you know, and if in Australia we could have actually started a, a, a protest movement where a part of that movement was those who want to can open carry. And, and you know, when we had 10,000 people on the streets, maybe a thousand of those people would have chosen to open carry. If that was a part of our culture, would we have seen the crackdown and the level of violence that we've since seen from the police? We probably wouldn't have. I don't, I don't think that they would have started firing rubber bullets if they knew that the crowd had live ammunition that there are certain lines they just wouldn't have been willing to cross. So, and I, I honestly, I don't think they would have even created the confrontation that led to the rubber bullets being fired. They yep. just would have stayed out of our way, guided traffic, made sure that no one was vandalizing or doing anything stupid like that. And that would have been that. And, and we would have had a very large and growing peaceful, armed, but peaceful. This is what people, a lot of people don't understand. They assume that armed means violent. Armed usually means more peaceful. And I, I think Melbourne is an example of that right now. Let me make the counter argument. <clears throat> if you take that to its logical conclusion, you would assume that the American government would be more peaceful and less violent to its citizens than the Australian government is, but actually the reverse is true. <clears throat> you look at the level of violence that the American government happily uses against American people. There's obviously the high profile examples like uh, Waco, Ruby Ridge, uh, the, the Bundy Ranch, um, well, the, not, the Bundy Ranch standoff on the one hand, ended in a, in a stand down from them. But then there was the, the Malher Reserve takeover where they ended up shooting, uh, they sh ended up shooting Lavoy uh, Finnegan uh, dead. Um, you know, they, they have a pretty substantial history of using lethal force against their own people. Now that doesn't suggest that an armed populace is more safe from their government, at least in, in, the, in the way their government is gonna treat them. Um, you know, so I can make an argument both ways to say, well, if the Melbourne protests had been armed, then they would have remained peaceful because the violence came from the government. However, then how come the American government is able to be and is very willing to be so violent uh, against its own people, despite the fact that they're armed? So I can argue that both ways. But from, from my perspective, I don't care about the, the, um, the pragmatic question. I don't care about the utilitarian argument. Uh, the utilitarian argument only becomes relevant once you first get through the in principle argument of what's actually morally right and disarming a free people is not morally right. Yep. Perfectly said, man. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the first half of this episode of Here for the Truth with Topher Field. I highly recommend you go find him, search him out on Instagram and Facebook and stay connected with his content. He is someone that's on the ground in Melbourne covering. Can I say one thing? Um, the, the most important thing, yes, Instagram, Facebook, I am technically on Twitter. I never actually use it, but I think it posts the stuff I put on Facebook, I think goes up on Twitter or something like that. I don't know. Um, at Topher field on all of those. However, the most important thing that you need to do is to go to topherfield.net and enter your email address into my email list. You'll find it on the right-hand side of topherfield.net because that way, even if slash when I get taken off all the socials, 
I'll still be able to communicate with you. That list has more than tripled in size in just the last couple of weeks as more and more people have begun to realize that uh, we can't rely on social media platforms to actually do the right thing. So tofafield.net, put your email address in uh, and that way I'll be able to stay, stay in touch with you no matter what. Absolutely, man. I hear you there, bro. We, we, we're copping a heart on social media. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to our members. We'll see you on the other side. All right. To our members, welcome back to the second part of this episode with Topher Field. We've been having an incredible conversation so far. If you've been listening, um, Topher, I've noticed you're one person that's been on the ground the last week for these back-to-back protests, which have occurred throughout Melbourne and it's been some pretty incredible scenes. Um, can you can you walk us through that experience and what that vibe is like right now? Yeah, I, look, I haven't been at every single one of them. In fact, I've been at less than half of the ones over the last week, but I've been at most of the protests over the journey of the last 18 months. Then the last week was a pretty extraordinary week uh, within, a, within a pretty extraordinary year and a half. So I I need to go back in order for you to understand what's happened in the last week. I kind of need to go back a little bit further than that and give you the context into which this suddenly happened. So I I spoke at my first anti-lockdown protest on April 25th, 2020. So that's now, what is it? 15, 16 months ago. Um, And we had 70 people there. There have been people organizing protests semi-consistently ever since, depending on sort of going in and out of lockdowns and, and various things like things like that. There have been a few different groups. Oh, excuse me. I apologize. There have been a few different groups organizing. I'm, I'm boring even myself. Um, there have been a few different groups organizing protests, and um, I've been supporting them as best as I can, showing up to protests, live streaming, etc. We've seen the level of police violence slowly escalating, uh, them creating confrontation. They, they use a tactic called kettling where they try and surround the entire group and basically trap you so that you can't get out. Uh, and they use that to then <clears throat> grab people one at a time and arrest them. Um, but also uh, because it's in their interest for there to be violence. And so once they trap people, more people are more likely to actually push back or, or do something silly. And that, that makes them look good on the cameras, it makes the police look good. So their, their tactics have slowly escalated. And then we reached the point where... Um, in August, they used rubber bullets for the first time. And that was a, a line that was crossed that is now kind of, now they use rubber bullets is the first thing they do. And I'll talk about that later, but literally they start by firing rubber bullets at people. <clears throat> That's their first line of defense. Um, so, so there is a, a year and a half history of perhaps once a month, sometimes twice in one month protests that started out peaceful, that got quite large. We had as many as 10,000 people, even though they were illegal protests and the police had threatened us and warned us and said, don't do it. 10,000 people still showed up in the city and marched. And once you got 10,000 people, there's really not a lot the cops can do. They have to kind of take a bit of a hands-off approach. And so by and large, we, we ended up being left alone despite their best efforts. But I want to talk a little bit about the experience of getting into and out of an illegal protest before I get to what happened in this last week. Mm-hmm. So once you've got 10,000 people, the police have to take a step back. So their focus is trying to stop you from getting 10,000 people together in the one place at the one time, right? To get 10,000, you have to start with 100. And if they can pounce on you when you've got less than 1,000, then they can kind of attack that group, stop other people from joining it, and stop that critical mass from forming. And so the organizers of the protests have had to evolve their tactics and their strategies to try and facilitate that critical mass getting together that initial group getting together so that, so that the protest could actually even start in the first place. 
And they used a number of different tactics that, that evolved over the months and were very, very successful. They had three really successful protests in a row where at each protest, the police had been trying to intimidate people. Uh, you know, the first of those protests of those three that I'm talking about, which are the last three sort of big ones before it all blew up on the Monday. So the last of those three was on the Saturday and then everything blew up on the Monday. Um, but each of those three, the police tried to tell us, don't do it. Each of those three, we were able to get a critical mass of people together that were then able to march and the police were not able to kettle or stop the protest or, or do huge numbers of arrests. They claim big numbers, but it's basically, it's not actually real arrests. They're just handing out fines to yep. people. Um, so we had three of those one month after another, after another. And it was amazing because the, the, the rhetoric for the police was always escalating. The rhetoric from the government was always escalating. We're using new tactics. We're going to, we're going to really slam you guys this time. And then we would have another successful protest and the egg on their face, the embarrassment on their face. They're being humiliated by a bunch of unarmed citizens who, you know, they, they literally on the Saturday before it all blew up on the Saturday, they announced that they were bringing in 2000 police officers. Now, the most that they had allocated to the anti-protest um, task force up until then was 700. So they nearly tripled their numbers for this particular protest on the Saturday. And at the previous protest was where they'd shot people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this escalation in violence and then the psychological pressure of we're going to have 2000 police officers. What chance do you think you've got meant that our numbers were down, but the organizers moved the, meeting point an hour beforehand and people have learned to be paying attention uh, and so an hour before the uh, the the protest was supposed to start they announced a location that was outside of the city so the, the, the cops had put 2,000 police around the city and in the city and they just said well we'll just go over here and we showed up we got about I don't know 1,500 people together really quickly early on and then we started marching and we marched away from the police and then we were able to march around the whole thing went on for about two hours the police trapped us twice and twice we got out of their trap because they didn't have all the resources there. All the resources were still scrambling to get to our location, getting out. They've got the right police. They can't just jump on a bus with all their stuff. They've got to check in all their weapons, check in all their shields, you know, because, because there's no weapons, you know, not allowed to have weapons. So they have to be like super secure, even with a, you know, with, with pepper spray and blah, blah, blah. Like these are all restricted weapons. There's all this process that goes around it. Then they have to get on the bus, drive to the new location and get off the bus and check out the weapons and check out the, the stuff and blah, blah, blah. Like it's, there's this whole process that they put themselves through. So because we'd met outside of that kill zone that they'd set up and then we marched in the other direction, they were only able to get uniformed police officers in front of us. And they kettled us once after about only about 25 minutes, they had us trapped on a street and they were bringing up reinforcements. And I kid you not, you can watch my live stream from, from that particular Saturday. It was two Saturdays ago. And they were bringing up massive numbers of police officers and, and shit was about to get messy. This was about to get really, really ugly. They were not, they were not there to have a cup of tea, right? Uh, and then I slipped over a fence and was able to climb over a gate and get out. And then I joined a growing crowd on the outside of the kettle. So this weird thing happened where you had police at one end protesters in the middle and then police that used to be at the end but such a big crowd of protesters had now gathered on the other side of the police that they were kind of kettled by us there was this this sort of weird dynamic starting to build and it was it was it was going to explode it was going to turn very very nasty but then someone a resident opened a big metal gate that was blocking one of the exit opportunities and it was a huge gate so they just pressed the button and then all of a sudden people just were able to flood out and uh, and so the police it was like the just the sea receded 
Uh, and the police, of course, couldn't respond fast enough. And so they made a few arrests, but not all that many there. And they got out, got to the next street, which is where I'd just come from. So I went back and joined them along with a bunch of others and we resumed marching. So that was kettle number one, we got out. We marched for the better part of another 40 minutes before we went into an area where we were pretty vulnerable to getting kettled. It wasn't a great idea to go there, but there's no one, no one's in charge. No one's making these decisions. The crowd is making these decisions. And uh, so we ended up going in there and sure enough, they kettled us, they kettled us again in that location. Um, and then that time there was no peaceful way out. It was a, basically, a, think of it like a box canyon, right? Huge, steep rock walls on both sides, the police at both ends. Um, but they didn't have the resources again. They didn't have a lot of police there yet. And so we, and you can see this on my video, I was one of the ones that, that pushed through the police line. And, uh, and then again, the whole group of people were able to get out. Now, after we pushed through that police line the second, or got out of the kettle the second time, pushed through that police line that one time, the police stopped chasing us. And from there, there was no confrontation. There was no violence. You know, I, I, I have a question that I asked myself, that I always ask myself when there's violence happening, who needs to stop being violent in order for the violence to stop? You know, when the police were there and we were there, we marched the other way. We weren't initiating any violence. It was only when the police stopped initiating violence, all of a sudden the violence disappeared. Amazing, right? So you can see very clearly where the violence in this situation is coming from. So that had happened on a Saturday. We had had two showdowns with the police. We had won both of them, including a physical push through of the police lines and to the point that they stopped even bothering. They stopped even trying. So big win as far as I'm concerned right? 2000 police officers, they brought out all their toys, riot police, they shot people with rubber bullets only a month earlier. And that was how we finished on the Saturday. That's a pretty big win. At the same time, on the Friday, the day before that, a roadmap was announced and, and new rules were announced by the government. And one of them was or a few of them were uh, touching the construction industry. Now, the construction industry in Melbourne is union run, and they are a big part of the Labor Party, and the Labor Party are who Daniel Andrews is a, is a, a politician for. So it's literally a part of the power base of him as the Premier. But he introduced rules that said, if you didn't get uh, jabbed within seven days, then you could no longer work on a construction site. And he also introduced rules effective immediately that restricted how many people could be in the break rooms of a construction site that effectively made the break rooms completely useless. So what the tradies did on the Friday, so they started the day before this protest that I was just that I just went through in detail. They took their break rooms to the street. They picked up their tables, they picked up their chairs and they plonked them down in the middle of the road, right in front of the tram tracks, blocking the entire street. And this was their, their first protest was on the Friday. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing to see. It was, I loved it. They did, um, some sites were open on the Saturday. We saw a little bit of that, but overall they were pretty quiet. But then on the Monday, they all showed up to their union building, which is just in the north of Melbourne on a street called Elizabeth Street. So the main union involved was the, the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union, CFMEU, I think it is. Um, and that's the main union, union involved. So thousands of their members showed up on Monday morning out the front of that union building to demand that the union demand from the government a withdrawal of the mandatory jab requirement, right? They wanted the union to push back over this mandatory jab issue. And John Setka, who is the, the head of that unit at the moment, is deep in the pockets of the Labor Party. So the Labor Party and the unions are kind of, they are, they're, 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 they're Siamese twins. They're, they're joined at the hip. Um, and so he doesn't want to lose favor with the Labor Party. So he has to, he had to make a choice. 
does he stick by the Labor Party or does he actually do the right thing by his members? And he made the choice to stick by the Labor Party. And he actually sold his members out and he did it on radio. So he was negotiating at the front with his own members. And then he said, listen, I need an hour. He goes inside an hour and a half later, he still hasn't come out. And then people start playing a recording of John Setka, who had just gone on 3AW, a talk radio station in Melbourne, and had sold out his members and had said of them that they were a bunch of baby Nazis and they weren't even members of the union. Wow. Right? Now, when you've got, you've got a couple of thousand angry people at your door demanding that you do your job and do the right thing and then you treat them in that way, they're going to be pissed. Mm-hmm. So it ended up with the front door of the union being the union building being destroyed and being broken down. Um, bottles were being thrown. I, I was loving it. I was just sitting. I wasn't there at the time. Uh, I was watching uh, footage by a bloke named Ruxhan, R-U-K-S-H-A-N. If you're interested in what's going on in Melbourne, you've got to find Ruxhan. He goes under the name The Real Ruxhan on YouTube, on um, Facebook, and I'm sure on other platforms as well. And they literally, they kicked in and they smashed down the front door of the union building. All the union heavies were inside trying to fortify the door. They grabbed a fire extinguisher and they're trying to spray it out the door to try and, you know, get people to back off. It was, it was great. I, I was, I was just sitting there with popcorn. Just, just <laughs> it was so good. Um, now, uh, in the end, the police moved in. All right. And, and at that point you kind of go, all right, there is, there is vandalism. There is criminal damage being done. The police move in to stop two sides from beating the absolute shit out of each other. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so they moved in. The crowd ended up having to, to back off a little bit. And then um, that triggered that week of protest. So that Monday, they marched around a little bit, uh, but it was all kind of focused on the union building. On the Tuesday, they came in. Uh, and, and it was, again, it was initially focused on the union building, but it, it started to become a wider protest. And they ended up actually marching down onto the Westgate Bridge, which is a fairly iconic bridge in Melbourne, that John Setka's dad, so there's a lot of symbolism in what they did. John Setka's dad started and got involved in unions and really kind of helped to make the union movement what it is after he survived a bridge collapse during the construction of that bridge. A number of people died. My memory, I don't know if this number is correct, but I'm, I'm remember. I'm, my brain is saying it was actually a few dozen people were killed in this bridge collapse. And John Setka's dad was a survivor of that. And obviously that left a huge impression on him. And so he then became a massive union figure and, and helped to build the CFMEU into what it is. And John Setka, as the son of, of his dad, sort of inherited that power, but he's not, he's not his dad. He's not a fraction of his dad. And so they marched out to the Westgate Bridge and they marched across the Westgate Bridge and back again as a symbolic... You know, they understand their history. They understand the history of their union. And they marched across that bridge and back again to say, fuck you, John Setka. You remember your dad? Because we do, right? And you're selling out his legacy. That was what that symbolism was about. Um, So it it was, again, it was another popcorn day. I'm just sitting there absolutely loving it. I then went in for the protest on the Wednesday. And this is where things got really properly ugly. So... The police had shifted gears over those two days of protest. The police had shifted gears where rubber bullets were no longer being used as a last resort. They were being used as crowd control. They're literally, they'll just have a line of police and they'll start walking towards a crowd and they'll just start shooting. Um, and people have to just run out of the way. So they're, they're now just using, they're using like cattle prods, basically. Um, what impact does a rubber bullet have on, on a human being? Sa- savage. No, savage. So, so the very first person to get shot was a man by the name of Matt Lawson, uh, who I, I know and I've met through this, uh, through this journey. That was, um, let me get you the date for that so that we can actually figure it out together exactly how long ago that was. Uh, that was Saturday, 
I think it was the 14th of August. It might've been the 21st of August. So we're talking now more than a full month ago. Yeah. Now I, I saw him on that Wednesday, the Wednesday that I'm just about to be telling you about. I saw him that day and he's still walking with his arms pulled across his chest because he hasn't healed properly from just the impact injury. He's going to have to have some surgery to fix up because there was internal bleeding and there's an abscess now as a result of the internal bleeding from the impact of the rubber bullet. People assume that these things are non-lethal. They're not non-lethal. They are less lethal. Mm-hmm. They're less likely to kill you than a live bullet is, but they are still very, very violent things. Now, if you're shot at a longer range, obviously the, the impact reduces, but if you're shot at close range, which he was, uh, the injuries last for weeks, months, who knows how long before he's actually going to be healed again. Uh, and he's also the psychological impact of it is pretty extreme as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the psychological impact of getting shot, understandably. So on the Wednesday morning, after these two days of the unions really arcing up, they'd marched across the Westgate Bridge and shut down that freeway, marched back again. The police tried to stop them with a the police line as they came back and they just ran around and, and broke that police line. It wasn't very effective at all. Um, and so then we hit the Wednesday and on Wednesday morning, out comes the police leadership, out comes Daniel Andrews, and they're saying, aha, we've got new tactics. And you knew, you know, we don't come into the city today. Don't you dare come and try and protest. Uh, you know, it's not going to work. Well, we quickly discovered, or the protesters that had gathered early, um, quickly discovered that the new tactics were that they'd rolled out the anti-terror squad. Literally, the squad that they put together after 9-11 under, under all the various emergency legislation that was brought through then to keep us safe from terrorists, those guys were now on the streets to, to shoot at unarmed protesters. They had an armored vehicle called a Bearcat and they literally drove it down the street with a whole bunch of officers walking behind it or even riding on it shooting rubber bullets at unarmed civilians who weren't even part of a protest. They were literally shooting at anyone that they looked at. Like if you weren't wearing a mask or if you were wearing a high-vis vest, which which sort of marked you out as a tradie and part of the tradie protest, but they'd just shoot at you, right? They weren't even using it as crowd control anymore. They were literally just driving down the street, shooting people. And, you know, again, people say, oh, but it's only rubber bullets. No, 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 these are pretty serious. And if you hit somebody in the head, like if you're shooting from a moving vehicle, over any sort of a distance, then yeah, you could easily hit somebody in the head and you could kill somebody. You could absolutely kill somebody. We've also seen extreme levels of violence being used by police um, in person. So people being thrown to the ground in ways where their head just smashes into the ground. Um, you know, people, people being quite significantly injured, uh, knocked out, knocked completely cold by that. So we're a really savage level of violence in use. So on that Wednesday, that's what they rolled out in the morning. I went into the city and played dodge and cops for a while. It's, um, it's, it's a new game that we've invented here in Melbourne. It's, it's quite a high stakes game of, of tag. Um, and uh, if you get caught, then especially for someone like me, where, where I'm recognizable, it won't just be a fine. It'll be, it'll be prison. Um, so I played dodge and cops for a while and I, I came to be of the view that, that the police tactics had probably worked, that we weren't going to get that critical mass together, that, that core initial group of a thousand or more people that allows you to then get a protest going. And so I was filming the police up in the north of Melbourne in a, pl- a part called um, Queen Victoria Market. And I got word that actually a group had got together and they were marching away from me south um, towards the south end of the city. So I had to play catch up with them. And I chased them for a while and I didn't finally catch up with them until they reached what turned out to be their destination, which is a place called the Shrine of Remembrance, mm. uh, which is a war memorial. It's something that we built to remember our soldiers that had that bought for us the freedoms 
that in our opinion have, are, are what's been taken from us. Um, so I finally caught up with them there. And that was, that was a wonderful thing to see was a, you know, multiple thousands of people there. We've been heavily criticized for going to the shrine. Oh, it's a sacred site. You shouldn't be protesting there. Well, I've got two things to say about that. Number one, we didn't choose to go there. We got chased there. Literally, we got chased there by riot police and anti-terror police shooting at people indiscriminately in the streets. I'm sorry if we went to take refuge at the one place where we hoped that they would have the decency to not shoot unarmed civilians. Um, you know, it's a little bit like a soldier going to a church during World War II in the, in the hope that they'll be treated with a little bit more humanity than if they were caught in the street outside. It's the same kind of idea. But number two, you know, Remembrance Day is on, on November the 11th. And in Australia, we have this expression, lest we forget. And it's a, it's a core part of our remembrance. And what we're saying is, is lest we forget what their sacrifice was for, lest we forget the price that they paid to give us the freedoms that we have. That's what that phrase means. And so Daniel Andrews, as, as the premier, is going to stand up on November the 11th and give some sort of mealy mouth speech about freedom and blah, blah, blah. And he's going to say, lest we forget. Well, listen, if you've got a problem with people who are trying to defend what's left of our freedoms, resorting to the shrine of remembrance as a, as a piece of symbolism, then you've already forgotten. You've forgotten, right? You might not have forgotten their names, you might not have forgotten the battles, you might not have forgotten the wars, but you've forgotten the reason, the whole reason why we sent them there to fight in the first place. Um, and if these freedoms that have been taken off us, if they were taken off us by a foreign government instead of by our own government, we would absolutely be at war with them. We would absolutely have sent in the troops and the tanks and the, and the ships and the planes to fight them tooth and nail for freedom. And the fact that it's been done to us by our own government has blinded a lot of people to just how serious and just how disgraceful this is that we've given away all these freedoms that came at such a high price. So we ended up at the shrine and we were there for quite some time and the police ended up in a standoff with us. They didn't have the numbers to completely encircle the shrine. It's a large physical area. And so they ended up, they took up basically one quarter was heavily fortified by the police, multiple layers of police officers, riot police. They had the Bearcat parked up the back, but it couldn't get to us uh, because of stairs. So that was the other reason why the shrine was a good idea. They couldn't bring the armored vehicle all the way up to us, uh, which is just kind of funny. Um, so we ended up in a standoff for a number of hours and it, it was quite peaceful. Um, the protesters certainly didn't want any violence. Why would we? We're unarmed and we're facing off with, you know, a small army of heavily armed individuals armed and armoured individuals. Um, but there were a few moments of goodwill that did happen between the police and, and all of us there. A minute of silence was held in honour of, there was a construction worker who on the Tuesday had uh, jumped from a high profile construction site in Melbourne uh, to his death. And um, because he, you know, in an apparent suicide, as best as, as anyone can tell. Um, and, you know, a, a minute silence was held in honour of him and in honour of everybody else, um, because we are seeing a lot of suicides and, and the media have tried to obfuscate that, the, the government have tried to obfuscate that, but we are seeing a lot of suicides. And so uh, we held a minute silence and the police participated in that. And we held a minute silence there. That was a, a kind of a nice communal moment and there were other sort of communal moments that happened individually where some people actually ended up being able to have a chat with with some of the police and, and that sort of stuff and it became fairly relaxed and then eventually uh the police opened up a dialogue with you know some sort of self-appointed leaders there, there is no leader of the protest movement but some people they asked for some people to negotiate with and some people came forward um and the police basically said listen 
we'll we'll let you go home. We don't want to we don't want to be shooting people at the shrine of remembrance. Um, the day's getting late. Um, this has to resolve in one way or another. Uh, we can, we're, we're not going to be allowed to go home as the police until the site has been cleared. So we're going to let just, just walk away. We, there'll be no arrests, etc. Um, and I was very inclined to accept that offer because think about it tactically. Think about it from the long game. Like I've been involved in this protest now for 18 months. You don't win in a day. You know, it didn't matter how long we all tried to sit there. Daniel Andrews wasn't going to resign. And from a long game point of view, we had won a spectacular victory. Think about those three protests that I talked about before where the police had used escalating tactics and every single time we got a critical mass together and we had a successful protest, right? And it happened again. They rolled out the anti-fucking terror squad and an armored vehicle and we still had a successful protest. And let's just, let's just clarify, this was on unarmed civilians, mums and dads with a small Correct. businesses and medium businesses. We're not talking Correct. about anything other than people who have just had their livelihood destroyed and are trying to stand for something. Correct. Yeah. Um, and and so I got on the megaphone because there are some people there that know who I am. But but this is where this is where we 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 ran into a real problem. Up until Saturday, the protests, the protesters all kind of knew each other. And a lot of them knew who I am, and a lot of them knew who you know real Rockshan is and, and so forth. And so I could stand up and talk to them and they would listen and they go, even if I don't agree, I'm gonna go along with it because okay, we all need to be on the same page here. But now with the unions involved, they brought in a bunch of new people, which is great. But number one, they were new and they didn't understand the long game. They'd started protesting on Monday and this was Wednesday. And they had this idea that they could just stand their ground and dig their heels in and win. Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. Secondly, they didn't know who I was or who any of the other people were who stood up and said, hey guys, the smart thing to do right now is to take the win while it's on the table and go home. So I then announced on my Facebook page that I was leaving and that, I, that in my opinion, anyone else who, who was there ought to leave as well. And a bunch of people did and other people were making the same statement, right? Let's go home, let's take the win. But unfortunately, a remnant of people chose to stay behind. Uh, and an hour or so later, literally while I was still driving home, the police moved in and started shooting uh, and everyone ran away. And we had this completely unnecessary scene, which, which I, I just, it didn't have to happen. Uh, it didn't have to happen on the police side, but it also didn't have to happen on the protester side. And we had an opportunity to be the adults in the room and we kind of, we kind of fluffed it. Um, but we had this scene where, yeah, police are, are moving in across the Shrine of Remembrance, firing rubber bullets at protesters. And like you said, unarmed people who are just desperate because of the impact on their families and the impact on their businesses and everything else. Um, and so that was how Wednesday ended. Then from there, Thursday, Friday, uh, and Saturday, it was very difficult to get a critical mass together. I tried to get there on the Friday and I, I, I drove in, I parked, I played Dodgem Cops for a while, but there was just, there was no group to join, right? The thing that I thought had happened on Wednesday, but then it turned out they did get a group together. That ended up happening on Thursday, on Friday. Uh, and again, on Saturday, I mean, a few small groups did get together, um, but they weren't in the city. So they were, they were, you know, down in St Kilda or up in, in Northcote or, or various other places. Um, then to bring you all the way up to speed on Monday, yesterday, we had a, the nurses got together and had a silent protest. They wore their nursing outfits. So, so they've now had a mandatory, mandatory vaccination mandate put on them. And they got together and they wore their nurses uniforms and they held up signs explaining, you know, I've been a nurse for 25 years or five years or however long it is. Uh, and now I can't, I'm not allowed to keep looking after people because I want to wait for the Novavax or, or I, you know, I've, I have a history of reactions to vaccinations, but they're forcing me to have this one. You know, they've all got their reasons why. 
and these are intelligent people. These aren't conspiracy theorists. These are people who understand healthcare, uh, who have been vaccinated, you know, who however many different times with different vaccines, but they very rationally, in my opinion, are concerned about the lack of time, the lack of history that we have on this particular vaccine. And they don't want to put it into their bodies. And, and in my opinion, that's their right. So they held a peaceful protest. They simply sat down on the grass holding their signs and four bus loads plus about 10 cars worth of police showed up, riot officers with their shields, uh, helicopters do, 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 overhead. It's this incredibly surreal thing. You can see photographs and video on, on my Facebook page. And um, they, after once the police were all kind of set up, they then went in and basically said, listen, if you just get up and leave, we'll let you leave. You know, we, you know, they obviously, the police don't want to be seen to be using batons and rubber bullets on, on nurses. Um, they chose to leave. I'm not going to criticize that decision. Um, there, there might've been a bit more that could have been gained if they, in their particular case, had stood their ground, but I, I don't expect anyone to, to make that choice. Um, they, they had made their point and they got a lot of good coverage out of it. And they, that was a good protest that achieved some good uh, PR for the, the, the movement. Uh, today, I'm not aware of anything going on today, but that brings you all the way up to right now. So we had this, this long period of a steady tempo of one, maybe two protests a month, all the way up until the police started using rubber bullets and really escalating the violence. And then when that building mandate came in, everything exploded last week, but things appear to be perhaps settling down a bit again now. Wow. It's, it's quite just, I'll say it again, but just the stark reality of what Australia has been and where we were and what we, what we were as a culture. So what's taking place now and I mean, how do how do these people possibly believe that this is still under the guise of health? How can these police officers still move forward with the ideology that this is for your health? Like, do they truly believe that? Do you think? A lot of them don't, and we know that because there, yeah, there's some sort of candid moments have been caught between police officers talking to each other or, or talking to members of the public, and. Uh, there was one in particular that was really quite telling as a, as a riot police officer with all of his gear and he's walking along beside presumably a protester who's got his phone down, but he's recording. And so he caught the conversation. Yeah. Um, and the officer was was basically saying, look, I, I don't like it. I'm, I'm with you guys, um, but I, I've got to feed my family. You know, and, and justifying it in that sense. Now, I don't think that's an acceptable justification at all because in him choosing to feed his family, he is then being sent out to stop other people from feeding theirs. He's being sent out to, to ensure as part of the fear campaign to ensure that people don't open their businesses, that people don't work, that people don't see family. Like he's, he's inflicting on other people the very suffering that he doesn't accept for himself, that he's afraid of for himself. So I think that's a, a morally, it's a, it's a position of moral cowardice, in my opinion. I don't respect that position at all. Um, however, you can understand why people make that decision. They make that choice and they, they, they don't have the moral courage to do what's right if it's going to come at a cost uh, to them and to their, to their family. And, and that is just a human nature. That's just a, an unfortunate reality of human nature. Many police are very unhappy. One of the clever things that Daniel Andrews has done is he has not imposed a vaccine mandate on the police. Now, he imposed it on the nurses. The nurses are now protesting. He imposed it on the construction industry. The construction industry is now protesting. If he tried to impose a mandatory vaccination mandate on the police, he would split the police force. Mm -hmm. And he knows that he needs them. He's depending on them right now. And it's the, the old Martin Niemöller quote. You know, first they came for the communists and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the unionists and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a unionist. And he goes through that list of people. And eventually, then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak up for me. Well, for the police, that's what it's going to be. Daniel Andrews is smart enough that he's not going to put the mandate on the police until he's managed to bully everybody else using the police 
to bully everybody else. And then eventually he'll go, right, now it's your turn. And they'll say, oh, no, I'm not happy. And look around and all the people that they bullied over the previous however long are going to be looking at them going, oh, yeah, you think we're going to come to your rescue now, do you? Yeah. You know, so Daniel Andrews, he's, he's, an, he's a genuine psychopath in my opinion, but he's tactically very clever. And, and I think the way that he's played this out with the mandates and, and not putting mandates on police is a very clever move. Yeah. Have you been um, following what's happening in Sydney at all? Honestly, not really. I, I, I don't have the emotional or psychological capacity to, to really pay attention to what's happening outside of my own life and my own city at the moment. Uh, but feel free to fill me in. Well, I mean, uh, we're, we're now in, I think it's the third month of, of a lockdown um, that, that, that's continued. And yeah. uh, look, yeah. you, you know what? That's, that's not so bad. I mean, you know, they say, they say the hardest part of uh, 14 days to flatten the curve is the first three months. <laughs> um, and you're through that now. So things should get a bit better. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so for a long time, it seemed as though by the time we got out of this lockdown, which is the, what Gladys kept saying was the 80% double dose that at yeah. that point vaccination passports would be the requirement for all businesses. Yeah. And yeah I would yeah, say yeah. the majority of businesses around Sydney um, are looking to, to follow these orders, et cetera, except yeah. yesterday, all of a sudden she's come out and said from December one, the unvaccinated can do what they want, can shop yeah. freely, can roam freely. And it's, it's, okay. it's not going to get to that point. Let me tell you why I think that happened. The uh, Peritet, the treasurer in New South Wales, two days ago, I think it was, maybe three days ago, I lose track of time, came out with a, quite a clear statement against medical apartheid, against the idea of separating the community along the grounds of, of vaccinated and unvaccinated, etc. And I suspect that he wasn't supposed to do that, but that he actually stood on principle, a very rare thing from a politician, but he actually chose to speak out on principle. And that inside the Liberal Party, a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of MPs went, yes, you, you're the one who's right. Gladys, you're the one who's wrong. And now Gladys is worried about a leadership spill. She's worried that she's going to get rolled by her own MPs because now someone has finally articulated an alternate vision that, mm. that wasn't all the lockdown, it wasn't all lockdowns and, and vaccine passports and everything else. When you see a backflip like that, 90% of the time, the politician is doing it to cover their own ass. And I would suggest that, was it Dominic Perrottet? Is that the name of the treasurer up there? I'm not certain. Um, yeah, um, I suspect that it's, you know, treasurer is often viewed as an understudy position. You go treasurer, uh, then you go deputy premier, and then you go premier, right? Treasurer is on that pathway to becoming yeah. pre uh, premier. And I think Gladys has looked at him and looked at the support he would be getting internally for that, for that statement. And she is now worried about a leadership challenge. That's how I would interpret that. Yeah. It's just... wild. You know, I'm sitting here in the US, you know, just hearing what's going on in Australia and fuck, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, it's, it's very, very difficult to come to terms with watching it happen right in front of you. I, I had the misfortune slash pleasure of being in Venezuela in 2015. It was the most phenomenal week of one of the most life-changing weeks of my life and two things really struck me while I was there how normal it looked on the one hand right um, there's there's still supermarkets there's still cars on the streets there's still houses there's still like this is this is you know and, and actually how beautiful it was not just the natural the natural beauty is phenomenal but they used to be in the top 10 richest countries on earth and the architecture from you go to the 1940s and 30s the architecture the buildings they were building back then are stunning 
Uh, and yeah, they haven't been well maintained, but still, you can see that the money was there. Mm. And so you walk down the street and you could so quickly and so easily just go, oh yeah, this is, this is nice. This is just a normal place. The, the destruction was not at that superficial level. Sometimes it was. Sometimes you could see it, dilapidated buildings and stuff like that. But it was one layer down. When you walk into the supermarket, the shelves are empty. To get into the supermarket, you've got to stand in line for four hours, six hours, eight hours. Uh, we were there for a friend's wedding and the family began buying things that they needed for the wedding six months before and then freezing things, um, you know, just, just to make sure that they would actually have enough butter and flour and eggs to be able to make the cake, for example. You know, they, that was months of planning to be able to do that. The family, different, different parts of the family working together to, to be showing up to different supermarkets to try and get the little bits and pieces that they could over that, over that period of time. Um, and so on the surface, you can see it's, it's still fine, but you know that under the surface, there is this incredibly dysfunctional society. And when the lockdowns have been being obeyed, thankfully people are obeying them less and less. There's more and more cars on the road, more and more shops are just opening up now. Um, but when they were being obeyed, there was this eerie familiarity for me where I was like, I can look around, all the shops are still there. All the stock is on the shelves, you know, it, but, but where are the people, you know, and we've got this same things happening where there is this deep dysfunction just below the surface and we are destroying our prosperity. We're destroying our freedoms. We're destroying our country. And there's a lot of people that can't see it because they are still getting money in their bank account, whether it's from the government or because they have a laptop job, they look around down the street and it's all familiar. They can see all the same shops. They can see all the same things that they've seen before. The sun is still shining, uh, but they don't understand and they can't identify the deep dysfunction that is now just there below the surface. And I know because I've seen it, that that's all it takes, right? It doesn't, it doesn't take Nazi jackboots on the streets. It just takes a dysfunction, a, a government-led dysfunction that stops people from being able to make good decisions and to be able to provide for their families and, and to earn money and to run businesses. And once you, that dysfunction is there, all it takes is time and you end up in Venezuela. That's it. And if we keep going for long enough, we are on the road to Venezuela. Make no mistake. We are on the road to Venezuela in Australia right now. And we are closer to it than people think. When you add the fact that our borders are closed to Australians who want to leave, right? You have to beg the government for permission to get out. That Australian passport holders can't get back in. Uh, what value does an Australian passport hold anymore? But you put in combination of these two things, you can't provide for your family you can't stand up for your human rights and you can't leave, right? There are two countries in the world that you can describe with all three of those things simultaneously. Their names are Australia and North Korea. Those are the two countries that fit that description. If you had a choice of where to go right now, where would you go? Uh, Caribbean. And by that, I include the Caribbean coast of Central America. I, I would be looking to learn Spanish uh, and probably get a passport from the island of Dominica and then live in the Dominican Republic, which is a different place to Dominica, possibly Mexico, possibly Colombia. As soon as Venezuela throw off their socialist chains and as soon as I open back up again, I will be there in a heartbeat and I will be investing. I will be investing in Venezuela because they have been crushed down to such a low level that their rise, I think, is going to be meteoric. And uh, they, they will go from being among the poorest countries in the world to being in the middle 
they're not going to go back to being in the top 10 for a very, very long time if they ever do, but they'll get back into the middle uh, in, in only a couple of decades and investing in Venezuela and beautiful people. And actually, they've actually got a remarkably good work ethic for a Central American country. Uh, it's just, they've been completely abused out of being able to actually work. Um, so in the end, once, once um, Nicolas Maduro is either dead or, uh, or removed, uh, assuming that that then leads to a release from, from the chains of, of communism, they call it socialism, it is communism, uh, over there, then uh, I, I would happily go and live there. But in the meantime, I'll, I'll find a place in the Caribbean, uh, probably in a country that's too poor to be able to oppress people in the way that rich countries can. Yeah. You know, they can't afford to have all of these, the, these full-time employees whose job is to shoot people on site in the street. Uh, they can't afford to run all these welfare programs. They can't afford to do all of that. And people can't afford to let them, you know, they can't afford to let them shut them down. So I'll go and find a place that's poor enough that I'll be left alone and, uh, and raise my family. And then when Venezuela finally throws off the, the, the chains of communism, I would go there and my wife would talk to each other. Would you be happy if we ended up growing old and dying in Venezuela and being buried in Venezuela? And that's where our grandkids call home. And the answer is, yeah actually we we would be sounds nice man <laughs> it does. I, I was a little sad you didn't say los angeles county in california <laughs> but it's okay um so <laughs> I, I don't know if you've noticed but i'm trying to avoid the communists um, <laughs> um listen here's, here's the thing I, i've spent a lot of time in texas um and i worked on a, a film project over there and, and have a lot of friends there i've been there multiple times uh, I would happily move to Texas or to Florida if you would just hurry up and secede from the union, yeah. right? Um, your federal government is freaking terrifying. Your IRS has its own SWAT teams. Like, well, that's not normal. Mm -hmm. That's not sane. Um, you know, you've got people doing no-knock raids and, and then going, oh, sorry, wrong house. Um, you know, your, your, your government is well and truly out of control. I could deal with the state government I could deal with living in Texas. And, and, you know, if it was the Republic of Texas, I could deal with that. That's a small enough, you know, that's about the same size as Australia. Um, and I can get involved in politics over there and, and, and so forth. Same with Florida. But your federal government, man, you got to get that thing under control because that is going to destroy your whole country. I hear what you're saying. All right, man. I got one more question for you. Sure. What is the solution what do the people need to embody how yeah. what if if any what is the first step towards a way out of this the glib answer is the solution is that we all have to be oppressed for about the next hundred years because that will teach us the lessons that we've forgotten uh, and we will die under oppression and our kids will die under oppression our grandkids will be born and die under oppression but maybe by then people will start to figure it out you're familiar with this cycle of, of you know strong men create good times good times create weak men weak men create hard times hard times create strong men we are in the phase of weak uh, of, of weak men creating hard times that is the phase that we are in right now and some of us are awake to it uh, and hence we're having these conversations but the problem is there's nowhere near enough of us and culturally speaking uh, i don't know that the, that the culture can be saved from itself and saved from that reality that ignorance that apathy that has really taken a hold right across the Anglosphere. Um, so that's my glib answer is, is we're just going to have to suck for a while. 
right? And until we learn the lesson. Uh, however, let me let me be a little bit more thoughtful than than that. The reality is that throughout history, history is made by a minority. It's not usually made by a majority of people. It's made by a, it's a, what's the the expression the tireless majority that set brush fires of freedom into the hearts of men. The, this is what's actually dictated history over the years. When you think about English history and you think about things like the Westminster system, the Magna Carta, the British, the English Bill of Rights, um, these were not mass movements supported by a majority of Englishmen. These were movements supported by a minority of people who just would not quit and eventually were able to force the monarchy to agree to these things that they didn't want to agree to. We need to do the same thing here. And I, I'm very, I have reconciled myself with the fact that as a libertarian in Australia, I'm a part of a very small minority. There might be maybe 3% of the entire Australian population that even knows what libertarianism is, much less agrees with it, right? So I'm a, I'm a political commentator appealing to an incredibly small audience in a very small country. Um, and I'm reconciled to the fact that I'm going to be a minority player for the rest of my life. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to be effective. It doesn't mean that I can't actually accomplish change. And to me, what do we need to do? Well, we need to not give up and not because we're necessarily guaranteed to win if we don't give up, but for this simple reason. Have you heard of a guy named Martin Niemöller? Well, yes, I think. From, from Germany during World War II, right? He was, uh, I think, a Lutheran pastor. And he is the one who I quoted earlier when first they came for the communists and I didn't speak up because... I'm not a communist. Then they came from the unions. I didn't speak up. He was speaking out against the Nazis and he chose to stay in Germany and ultimately got executed by the Nazis just before the end of the war. I'm really grateful to him, even though when he got executed, he could easily have sat there. He didn't, he didn't live to see the end of the war. He could have sat there and gone, I failed. I, 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 didn't, I didn't accomplish anything. What, what, what did I achieve? Hitler's still in power. I'm being executed now. You know, it was all for nothing. Well, it wasn't all for nothing we remember him and we remember what he did. And we remember that there were good Germans who stood at the time when it mattered. Are you familiar with Tank Man? Yep. The, uh, the, from Tiananmen Square in China. Yep. Okay, mm -hmm. the guy who stood in front of the tank. We don't know his name, but we know that he existed. And that's actually important. That's actually significant. Uh, and yeah, throughout history, we, there, there are these people who stand and yeah, maybe it's futile, maybe it doesn't achieve very much but history records and remembers that there were people that stood. And my focus right now, because I, we're living in history, we don't know how it finishes. We don't know whether we get a happy ending or whether we've got to go through a hundred years of suck. Um, but my focus right now is to live with integrity and to live in such a way that history records that there were people who stood. I don't give a shit whether history remembers my name, but I want history to record that there were people who stood no matter what the outcome is, when historians look back on this, they will record that there were a remnant of people who understood what was at stake and did what was necessary and did what they could to try and save their own culture from its own stupidity. And whether we succeed or not is really beyond my powers, right? I, I don't have the power to determine whether we succeed or not or predict whether we will succeed or not. But I do have the power to make sure that history remembers that there were people who stood. And that's what my focus has become. Man, what a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, truly. Thank you for having me. I, I do appreciate it. And uh, having that longer form um, interview where you, you can go a bit deeper, you can really sort of discuss these things. I really appreciate that. So 
I wish you guys all the best. Uh, Joel, good luck with your own fight up in Sydney. Thanks, and, man. Um, you know, Simos, I, I hope that um, you never have to uh, live through what we're currently experiencing mm. down here. I hope so too, man. Keep up the good fight. Thanks again for being on here. Absolutely. My pleasure. My, much, much respect, man. And just keep, keep doing your thing. Keep speaking truth to power. And it's, it, it does make a difference and it does count. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So our members, thank you for listening. We're going to drop all Topher's links in the show notes. Subscribe to his mailing list if you want to stay up to date with what's happening here and where he's, what he's doing. And we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Smoking mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean.